So just a reminder of what we talked about in the prior session, so session two, uh, we, Imam Ghazali was advising his uh, senior student about being mindful of the uh, of deviant aspects of deen, and in particular people that claim to guide along the spiritual paths but actually have distorted views of deen and share those distorted views. And so not to be mesmerized by these individuals, um, but rather recognizing that true suluk and true tasawwuf is when a person exerts themselves by way of discipline and uh, not just useless statements and outbursts. Um, and then um, he mentions that, well, and then he covered um, how deen is largely experiential and that unless we taste deen, we're not really going to know what it's about. If we just follow rules and regulations and propagate rules and regulations, then that's all we're going to, we're all, that's all we're going to get. Um, he talked about the four um, necessary uh, steps, you can say, of the spiritual traveler, the sadiq. One is that they have very sound aqidah. Number two is that they perform sincere tawbah, repentance. Uh, number three is that they reconcile with all people, including enemies. Any difficult, any um, uh, any issues they may have, or that they may have with other people, that they reconcile these, um, so that Allah Ta'ala is pleased with them and there's a clean slate by which they can operate. And number four is that we should learn enough knowledge that is necessary. And then the final point, if you remember, was the conclusion where Alama Shibli mentioned that of all of the traditions of Prophet Sallallahu this one tradition that he's been holding onto and has been living his life according to it uh, was that a person should work for their terrestrial life in proportion to their stay in it and work for your afterlife in proportion to your eternity in it. Work for Allah in proportion to your need for Him and work for the fire in proportion to your ability to endure it. Right? So we talked about this last time. So the next... Um, section we'll be covering. Um, I'll put it on the screen here. So he, he continues and he gives a lot of lessons to uh, his student. Okay, so the next section that we're going to cover, and I'll read from here. بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم أيها الولد قد علمت من هات من هاتين الحكايتين أنك لا تحتاج إلى تكثير العلم والآن أبين لك ما يجب على سالك سبيل الحق. Okay, so he says to his student, O student or O son, you have understood from these two stories that you do not need extra learning. So we didn't cover it, but he gave him two stories. Again, imagine an elite scholar speaking to another scholar and saying that and telling him that. Um, you, you don't need more at this point from a knowledge standpoint. You have that. Right? Now it's about practice. Now it's about digging deep into the spiritual sciences pertaining to that knowledge and how to make it relevant. Then he says, now, um, he says, وَالْآنْ لَكَ مَا يَجِبُ عَلَى سَالِكَ I will explain to you what is indispensable for the traveler on the way of truth. What is in indispensable for the traveler on the way of truth? Um, so if you remember last time he talked about uh, a few things that were that were necessary um, and again here these are things that he says uh, th this next point that he's going to make he says is essential for anyone who's traversing the path toward Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala so he says اعلم أنه ينبغي للسالك شيخ مرشد مرب ليخرج الأخلاق السيئة منه السيئة منه بتربيته ويجعل مكانها خلقا حسنا ومعنى التربية يشبه فعل الفلاح 
الذي يخلع الشوك ويخرج النبات نباتات سوري ويخرج نباتات الأجنبية من بين الزرع ليحسن نباته ويكمل ريعه. So he says, what is this indispensable thing? He says. Know that the traveler, the sadhak, should have a master as a guide and instructor to instruct, to rid him or her of bad traits through his instruction and replace them with good ones. The significance of instruction is comparable to the work of the farmer who uproots thorn bushes and removes weeds from the midst of the crops so that his plants are in a proper condition and his yield is brought to perfection. Right, so he's saying that the something that's indispensable here, that you that a person who wants to become closer to Allah Ta'ala cannot ignore this. And you know how I mentioned that Imam Ghazali he made the soul mainstream. And even at that time and even for several hundred years after, it was the norm that if a person wanted to develop themselves, which was the majority of the community, they would attach themselves to a particular teacher or a particular shaykh, a particular scholar that they could benefit from. This was the norm. It wasn't something that was far-fetched of an idea. Today, it's more of a foreign concept, uh, this, me this mentorship, you can say. Uh, but at that time, and certainly for much of our history, this was the standard, right? This is what so it's important for us to understand this. Um, so he says, number one, it's indispensable. No, so there's two points that he's making. One is indispensable. You can't go without a teacher, essentially, right? And that applies to us in deen. Honestly, even in dunya, the same idea applies. Anyone who's been successful at accomplishing their goals in dunya, for instance, you know, uh, anyone who's successful and come, gets a PhD, right? There usually is some mentor that they really spent time with. Uh, anyone who um, works in like a science lab, there's always this mentor who you just learn a lot from. In my own career, I've seen myself, you know, that I have one individual, maybe two, that have really guided me along the path of medicine. And if it weren't for these one or two people, I mean, I wouldn't, I mean, I can't, I can't just read books or attend classes and, and be able to become a, a, a proper expert in a, in a particular specialty. There's someone that you learn from, you absorb, you listen to what they say, you, you, you just be in their company, right? There's a benefit in being in the company of even people that advance us in our, in our dunya, let alone deen, right? This is, this is no, this is, I mean, the, the Western sciences have accepted this. The Eastern sciences have always had this concept, but somehow we've decided to separate them and segre uh, uh, altogether and say that this concept is for it. It's built within our deen. So he says that it's essential that, uh, number one, that a person has a teacher to, to help rid them of their bad tra traits through his instruction and replace them with good ones. Then he says, the significance of instruction is comparable to the work of the farmer. So what is the job, you can say, of the teacher? It's to cultivate uh, the student, right? It's to cultivate the student, uh, which is, you know, what any mentor does to any mentee. Uh, and in particular, what's in interesting here is he says that their main job is to try to remove ill traits so that the natural beauty essentially comes out. So he uses the example of crops or, or farming. You know, once you plant a seed, or let's say someone has a garden and they're upkeeping their garden, the majority of the work, let's say a vegetable garden, isn't in, you know, isn't in actually trying to grow that plant. That happens. The sun, Allah Ta'ala created for that to occur. Water, you may add a little bit of water. But most of the work is actually in removing the weeds that are around it, right? That's the hard part. It's actually maintaining all of those, or removing all of those negative things around it. So he mentions that um, the, the, the job of the teacher is to basically cultivate this student in such a way that it removes his or her evil traits from them. And naturally the effect of that, this is a subtle point that he's mentioning, is that the inner beauty will then begin to shine. 
right? It's not, you know, the hadith we mentioned yesterday, من حسني إسلام المرقي تركهما لا يعنيه From the beauty of the Islam of a Muslim, meaning if a person wants to become beautiful, you would think they would have to do X, Y, and Z and pray the Hajj and recite Quran and do this and do that. But all they have to do is actually remove those things that are unnecessary and the natural beauty actually comes out. Because inherently we're beautiful. The fact that we took the kalima and the fact that we're connected to the Prophet ﷺ, there's an inner beauty that lies within every single Muslim. Now, that beauty needs to actually be shown. I mean, and it's, it's hidden within us. Uh, and the reason it's hidden is because it's covered with all this rust and all this filth and all these weeds. If, you cultivate, if we cultivate those things and remove those things, the natural beauty within us will then actually begin to show and begin to shine. So that's a second subtle point that he's highlighting here, but it's important for us to understand this, that we all have a beauty within us, and it's a, a matter of us trying to expose uh, that, it, 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 and the way by which we expose that beauty is by removing those things that are unnecessary. So he says, um, so you remove the, 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 the responsibility is to remove the weeds, etc., so that his plants are in a proper condition and his yield is brought to perfection. Okay, the next thing he says, the traveler must have a master to refine him or her and show him the way to God the exalted. For God sent a messenger to his creatures in order to show the way to him. And when he died, God, uh, Allah Ta'ala blessed him and gave him peace. He appointed deputies in his place to show the way to Allah the Exalted. Right, so what he's highlighting here is that the Sadiq should have a teacher. Why? Uh, because this is the history of our tradition. The Sahaba all had a teacher, and that was the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. Right? And this was the model that was shown to us as a community that, look, if you want to become people of excellence, then you need to have someone that you circle around or that you take benefit from. Right? And so in the case of the Sahaba, the reason they became the Sahaba is because they had the Prophet And there was no doubting you know, in the community that, okay, I could become a proper Muslim at the time of the Prophet and not be connected to the Prophet. That, I mean, that concept wasn't there. So because of that tradition, this has now extended for set. This has now extended for centuries and centuries and centuries, the same sort of tradition. So it's being mentioned here. He's mentioning here. And uh, Imam Ghazali is mentioning here. For Allah sent a messenger to his creatures in order to show the way to him. Right? Allah Ta'ala specifically chose a messenger to show his creation that this is how you should live your life. And when he died, the Prophet ﷺ passed away. He appointed deputies in his place to show the way to Allah the Exalted. So he said that this same system needs to now be in place for anyone to then subsequently benefit, right? And so there's this silsida that's created. So then he says, there are criteria, and he talks about, well, what would be the criterion for the teacher? The criterion for the teacher who is fit to act as a representative of the Messenger of Allah is that, and he mentions a couple of criteria. So if someone's looking to see, okay, well, you know, if I want a teacher or if I'm looking for a teacher, what are the criteria that Imam Ghazali, who's the master teacher, is now advising his student about what you should look for, right? So he says, number one, is that that individual be knowledgeable, right? That individual be knowledgeable. Uh, meaning if a person is trying to guide without knowledge of the Sharia and the Quran and the Sunnah, then it's impossible for them to take you to word Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. It's just not possible. And that's, it's, you can say common sense. We know that. But believe it or not, it exists in today's day and age, right? Um, and then he says, but yet not every knowledgeable man is fit for deputyship. It's not sufficient for a person to just be someone of knowledge to then be considered a good teacher because not every single person that has knowledge is actually fit for deputyship. Uh, for let's see, so um, 
Yeah. So he says that the wording he uses is وَلَكِنْ مَا كُلُّ عَالِمٍ يَصْلُحُ لِلْخِلَافَةِ uh, and, and so what he's saying Khilafah here is not Khilafah in the sense of political Khilafah But Khilafah in the sense of representation of the Prophet Or the teacher for instance So he says not everyone is fit for it just because they have knowledge Because knowledge is, is, is important but, it's not, it's, uh, but with knowledge there are a lot more requirements as well You know there are people who have a lot of knowledge But they don't know how to guide others So that wouldn't be a good fit There are people who have a lot of knowledge But there's a lack of compatibility between the student and the teacher So then that wouldn't be a good fit there's people who have a lot of knowledge, but you know they may not necessarily have the best interest of, of others in mind. You know their character may not be up to speed, etc. So he's saying it's not sufficient to just have ilm, although that's a requirement. Then he says, I will explain to you some of his characteristics of, of someone who's a righteous teacher by way of generalization, lest everyone claim that he is a guide. Remember, I mentioned to you earlier, Imam Ghazali is very critical of of of, this, of, of certain Sufis in that time where people would claim to become a guide and guide people, and in, in, in reality what they were doing was just misleading them. So he was very critical. Now, it's important to understand, when he's saying that knowledge isn't sufficient, um, you got to look at where Imam Ghazali is coming from. This is the master scholar of our history, who's mastered every single possible science, and he's, no, it's, it's, it's something for me to say, the knowledge is important, but you know what, that's not what's sufficient. Because I'm not, you know, an alim, I'm not a proper scholar, you know, I'm none of those things. Uh, but it's another thing for you know the, the greatest scholar of our uh, of our history to be able to, to, to say this sort of statement. You know, just to give you an idea of how knowledgeable he was. I mentioned yesterday. Remember the biography. He was born in Toulouse. He went to Jurjan and he studied fiqh primarily. Came back, memorized all those materials, and that was around the age of eighteen and nineteen. And then he traveled to study further into a city called Nishapur, Nishapur, uh, which is also in Iran. Now it's really important for us to know what he was doing there, who he was with. So his teacher, you know, if you ever want to know in life, uh, if you see someone who's successful, you see a child who's like really attached to the Qur'an, you always want to know like, like what did your parents do, right? So same thing with a student. You see a student who's very successful, you know, there, there's a, it, it's, not the, it's not the student, it's really the, a reflection of the teacher more than the student. So Imam Ghazali, you should ask yourself, well, if this person was such an amazing scholar, like who were his teachers, right? And we should learn a little bit about his teachers as well. One teacher had a, had a significant influence on Imam Ghazali, and this was in his early 20s. And his name was um, Imam Abu al-Ma'ali al-Juwaini. Al-Juwaini is what his name was. A very famous scholar. He, he was uh, also a, a master of the Shafi'i Madhab as well. Um, he, his other name was Imam al-Haramain. So he was a teacher in Nishapur, and, he, and Imam Ghazali studied from him. Now, they call him Imam al-Haramain because when he, would, he had to travel for various geopolitical reasons, when he would go to Medina, he was such a scholar that the scholars and the people of Medina would actually learn from him. Then he traveled to Mecca briefly. When he went to Mecca, the people and the scholars of Mecca studied with him. So he was given the title of Imam al-Haramain. He's very well known in the Shafi'i Madhab because a lot of the principles of the Shafi'i fiqh come from him. Anyways, so he uh, had a very deep, relate, close relationship with the student Imam Ghazali. In fact, he had said, um, uh, he, he, he had made a statement, um, He said about Imam Ghazali, that to just to speak to how excellent he was, that he buried me while I was still alive. Meaning he surpassed me and I'm still here. Right? And Imam Al-Juwaini was considered the formal scholar of the time. So it's an important name to know, Abu al-Ma'ali al-Juwaini. Um, 
So just to highlight that this, you know, he even outpaced his, his teachers when it came to knowledge, and now he's coming to these conclusions. You know, it's, he, it was famously, uh, Imam Ghazali, rahimahullah, he famously made the statement that many, many, when he was young, you know, because remember I told you guys yesterday that he was put into this madrasa system when he was like five or six years old. So you could say, well, he was forced into a system of where he had to learn, and you know, if anyone's forced into the system of having to study deen, they're not going to really take benefit from it because the intention isn't properly there. So he's famously known to have made the statement that I um, studied knowledge or studied ilm for other than Allah. I studied knowledge, I studied ilm for other than Allah, meaning other purpose than Allah, but knowledge wouldn't lend itself to me except for Allah. Knowledge wouldn't lend itself for me, meaning even if I try to get around the, uh, uh, if I try to bypass it or circumvent it and learn things for the wrong reason, the, the ilm of deen is its own powerful force of this world that it does it didn't let him escape Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. It forced him back into it. Anyway, so he's saying that, okay, it's important that the teacher be knowledgeable and have ilm, but that's not sufficient. So I will explain to you some of the other characteristics. So he'll continue. I think we have about 15 minutes for this session, inshallah. So he says, um, so we say um, the teacher is someone who is averse to love of the world and love of fame. The teacher is someone who is averse to love of this world and love of fame. Uh, because, you know, the, the responsibility of any teacher or any guide in deen, uh, and I'm, I'm going to use the word teacher, but honestly, we can even apply it more generally to someone who has responsibility of deen, is to take people away from this false notion that this world is permanent and, and take that and remove that from them and take them to this place where they realize that this place is a place of, uh, is a temporary abode and the akhirah is really what's eternal. That's the main responsibility of a sheikh and a teacher. If that teacher cannot, in, in, cannot um, instill that within you or within me, well then what are they doing? You know, what's their purpose? The Prophet main purpose, right? He was Bashiran wa Nadira. He gave glad tidings about what's to come if you worship Allah. Not here, but in the Akhirah. Then Nadira, he was a warner about what can come to you in the Akhirah if you don't strive toward Allah Ta'ala in this world. So the teacher, who is now a deputy of the Prophet, has that same responsibility. And if they're doing other things, right, that are distracting us from this purpose, then that's not the true teacher. So he says, it's someone who they themselves are averse to love of this world, Hubbud Dunya and Hubbul Jah. Um, in Imam Ghazali's book, he has a abridged version called The 40 Principles of Deen, Al Arba'in fi Usul al Deen. And in there, he covers two major sections. One is on blameworthy traits of a Muslim, and one is on the praiseworthy traits. We covered, and so two of these traits are Hubbud Dunya and Hubbul Jah. And he has an entire chapter dedicated to each of these. And we talked about this in a prior Artigaf program. Each talk is probably an hour long. So if you want, you can find the recording online. We won't go into it right now. So he says, number one, so we meant number one is ilm. Number two is that the teacher themselves should have an aversion to not this world in dunya, but to love of this world in dunya. You know, many mashayikh are very qualified people even in the dunya. They're, you know, they have masters, PhDs, they're, you know, engineers, physicians, you know, they're, somebody was, we were just talking about this yesterday. Uh, one of the brothers, we were talking about how it's amazing that the people of Allah are so skilled uh, even in matters of dunya. It's unbelievable. You know, not to, but like yesterday, who who uh, who was the most involved and engaged in starting our campfires, right? When we had that 
training or testing session. You know, <laughs> I mean, who was who, just think about it? Who was the most involved in the gate and got two fires out of the three started? These people just tend to be very skilled. So it's not the problem is not involvement in dunya. It's about what's in the heart, i.e., the hubbu dunya and hubbul jah, and that we should be very careful about. This is a long discussion, but if you listen, if you want, you can listen to it or even read that chapter in the book, and it'll make sense. So ilm. Number two, they, shan't, they, they can be involved in the dunya, but they can't have love for it. Number three, he says, وَكَانَ قَدْ تَابَعَنِي شَخْصٍ بَصِيرٍ تَتَسَلْسَلُ مُتَابَعَتُهُ إِلَى سَيِّدِ الْمُرْسَلِينَ صلى الله عليه وسلم وَكَانَ مُحْسِنًا رِيَاضَةً نَفْسِهِ بِقِلَّةِ الْأَكْلِ وَالْقَوْلِ وَالنَّوْمِ وَكَثْرَةِ الصَّلَوَاتِ وَالصَّدَقَةِ وَالصَّوْمِ So he says, number three, is that that person has to be proficient in disciplining their soul with little food, speech and sleep, and with much prayer, charity, and fasting. Right? So, um, oh, sorry, I skipped one thing. Um, sorry, number one is aim, number two is no love. Number two, this person has to have been a student or a disciple of a person possessed of insight whose discipleship is part of a chain leading back to the Prophet So, the third is that the teacher should be attached to the Prophet in some way. And the way Imam Ghazali is mentioning here specifically is, he says, تتسلسل. There has to be some silsila or connection that goes back to the Prophet So a teacher who studies from a teacher, who studies from a teacher, who studies from a teacher, and eventually that went to a tabi'i, a sahabi, and that sahabi's teacher was the Prophet This applies to all sciences of deen, not just the solve. So if a person wants to become a master of hadith, they can't just open up a book of Bukhari and Muslim and become a master of hadith. They have to study from a shaykh al-hadith, and then that shaykh al-hadith should have studied from his shaykh al-hadith or her shaykh al-hadith. And that goes all the way back up to the sahaba and to the direct narrator, the Prophet ﷺ, or the, 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 the one who made these statements. Uh, tafsir is the same way. Every branch of deen is the same way that it requires a silsila that goes back to the Prophet So in the science of Islamic spirituality as well, Imam Ghazali is mentioning that if you're looking for a teacher, it has to be someone who they themselves have a teacher that connects back to the Prophet It can't be um, unmarked fruit. Okay, it can't be unmarked fruit. Um, and then the fourth thing he says is this person should be proficient in disciplining their soul with little food, speech and sleep, much prayer, charity and fasting. Meaning they should practice what they preach, right? These, 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 are, these are general principles of deen that everyone should practice. And so what he's mentioning here is that this teacher should also practice what they preach, um, i.e. they should be very deep in their worship. They should not be indulging themselves in speech, excessive speech, sleeping too much, eating a lot, etc., etc. Okay, um, he says. Um, so let me just summarize those four points. Number one is that the teacher should have knowledge. Number two, they should have uh, they shouldn't have love for the dunya in their hearts or love for um, fame. Number three is that they should have a silsila that connects back to the Prophet And number four is they themselves should be very proficient in disciplining themselves. So he says, by his discipleship of that insightful master, he has made his he has made into a way of life for himself, proficiency in virtues, such as patience, prayer, gratitude, reliance on God, certitude, contentment, self-composure, mildness, humility, knowledge, sincerity, modesty, fidelity, dignity, silence, deliberateness in acting, and such like. In consequence, he is a light amongst the light of the Prophet, a light of the Prophet fit to be followed in his, as an example. So these are things that he mentioned. So the... Um, uh, the, the teacher himself or herself 
should have to be very proficient in certain virtues. And he mentions these sabr and salah and shukr and tawakkul and yaqeen and qana'ah and nafs and hilm and tawadu' and ilm and sidq and hayat and wafat and waqar and sukun. So he goes on a list of things. And then he says, importantly, in consequence, he is a light amongst the lights of the Prophet right? Meaning, um, the, the, the light of the Prophet and this is a deep discussion and not, not to be had here, I guess, but uh, we all have a certain light within our own hearts, right? And the teachers and our mashayikh in particular and, and our ulama, they have a light that's coming from the Prophet that they're carrying and sharing with us. And this is how they're able to guide people toward Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. It's because this prophetic light is contained within the hearts. So he's mentioning that um, that that uh, the teacher as well is a representative of the Prophet sallallahu not just in terms of their teaching, but even in terms of the suhbah and company they can give to the people around them. It's a representation or a manifestation of the suhbah that the Prophet sallallahu gave to the sahaba. Right? For instance, the Sahaba would sit in the company of the Prophet and they couldn't think about anything other than Allah. It was that light that was coming from his heart that penetrated their hearts. And as a result, things became crystal clear. No words needed to be uttered. No, nothing needed to be written on a whiteboard. No announcements needed to be made. It was pure suhbah. And so similarly, that light um, uh, continues to benefit us even through this day. And the way that that light is channeled to us is primarily through the company of our mashayikh and our ulama. And that's what he's highlighting. Okay, the final statement that he'll make and then we'll conclude. He says, however, uh, let me just get the screen a little better. However, finding the like of him is unusual. So, that finding, so he said, <laughs> after telling us everything we need to be able to find this role model or mentor or teacher that can help us, he says, however, finding the like of this person is unusual. Harder than red sulfur. And, um, which is, which is at the time at least was very hard to find. Whoever is favored by good fortune in finding such a person or such a master, such that we have mentioned, such as we have mentioned, and the master accepts him, should venerate him outwardly and inwardly. So what he's saying is that val- if you happen to be that lucky person uh, who has a good fortune, right, from Allah Taala of being appointed or being presented with or being offered or being in the company of a teacher or a scholar or a mentor that can really guide you along deen, you hold on to them and cherish them and value them, you know, because these individuals are few and far in between. You know, many have their own motives and intentions. Some are insincere. Very few have the qualifications that he's mentioned here. If you happen to come across someone that meets these criteria, value them, hold on to them. You know, this is what I was mentioning yesterday when I said, or maybe, yeah, this yesterday, I was saying that there are people who have been presented opportunities in life and they don't seize that opportunity. Allah Ta'ala gives a limited window. You know, for instance, uh, a teacher comes into their life, a potential teacher, and they have the opportunity to really benefit, and they don't take advantage of that window. That window closes, Allah Ta'ala closes that chapter in their life, and now we're left to our own misery for many, many months or years to come. So he's saying here again the same idea that if you've been given this gift, value it, be grateful for it, and, and, and don't, let, don't, do any, and, and, um, don't let it go. Hold on to it like you would a tightrope. 
So uh, that's the end of this section. May Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala grant us to uh, benefit from the words of our scholars and our teachers. May Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala allow us to benefit from uh, the teachers in our lives and the ulama and the mashayikh that are not just in our company but even those that we communicate with uh, virtually. May Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala allow them to cultivate our hearts in such a way that, we become, that our hearts become pleasing to Him. Wa akhirat awana alhamdulillahi